the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you in church today, lovely to be worshipping with you, lovely to hear Richard talking about home groups and just how encouraging they can be, even if sometimes they are a little bit dull. Mine is never dull, but I I understand there can be a bit of dullness sometimes. It is great to be in a home group. We are continuing in our series in John's Gospel this morning, uh, and we have got to John chapter 17, and the title is The Hour Has Come. Uh, My name is Paul Cook. I'm a member of the leadership team, and I've just been loving this series in John that we've been doing for the past year or so. Now, this morning, I think with John chapter 17, we are very much on holy ground, Um, The reason I put that picture up is because in the Old Testament, we've got that amazing story of when Moses sees this bush that is uh, on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And God speaks to him at that moment and says, Moses, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. You're in the presence of God. And I feel like in John chapter 17, we are in the presence of God. You see, we have in Matthew and Luke, we have the Lord's Prayer. We know that the the famous prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc. That's the Lord teaching us to pray. In the Gospel of John, we don't have the Lord's Prayer, but what we have is the Lord at prayer. We see the Lord in his own prayer life. And that's what we have in John chapter 17, the longest prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ by a country mile that's recorded in Scripture. And that's why I say it's holy ground that we're on this morning in John chapter 17. And so, in uh, acknowledgement of that, I've brought along my quick-release footwear, and I'm going to take them off because I want to remind myself as I'm preaching this morning that I am on holy ground with this chapter. Uh, If you want to do the same, go for it. We'll live with the consequences. Okay, Uh, I'm also very conscious that we are going to just zip through John 17 this morning. It's quite a long chapter, uh, but uh, the the program team had the very good sense to make sure we were going to look at it sensibly in full uh, this term by having three Sunday evenings on this, uh, this chapter. So please do come back in August for our evening service when Richard and Adrian and Nick will be going into things in a bit more detail, uh, or that'll be on the Belmont website as an audio download as well. But uh, there we go. But this morning, we are going to uh, look at the whole chapter, and it's got three sections to it. And in the first section, we're going to focus on the idea of eternal life. What is that? Second section, we're going to think about this idea of being in the world, but not of it. And then in the third section, we're going to think about the difficult topic of Christian unity. So that's where we are headed. So if you've got one of these church Bibles, you want to be on page 1024. Uh, We've got green um, red boxes with it in. If you'd like to find one, uh, please do. Otherwise, look it up on your phone or whatever else you've got with you. Uh, But let me... Let me just pray before I, uh, before I start to read John chapter 17. 
So, Father God, I want to just thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you that you have inspired it through your Holy Spirit and you've preserved it down the centuries. And now I pray that you will use the holy ground of your son's prayer to enable us to come into your presence through these words, to hear what you have to say to us and to be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're there, we are in uh, John chapter 17 and verse 1. After this, uh, that's what we just looked at last week with Megan in, in chapter 16. Jesus looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. That's our title this morning. Um, And we've had throughout the gospel of John, Jesus saying, the hour is not yet come. Now is not yet the time. But here, finally, at the beginning of John chapter 17, Jesus says, the hour has come. And that's because he is now definitively going towards the cross. In John chapter 18, he'll get arrested. And then he'll go through that sham trial. And then he will be nailed to the cross. And he will rise gloriously again three days after. That's the hour that is now inexorably upon us. The hour has come, Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. He hasn't quite got to the cross yet, but he knows that it's going to be finished soon. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's the first section of this holy ground prayer. And when Jesus is talking here about eternal life, uh, what what is eternal life uh, according to the Lord Jesus Christ? When I think about eternal life, I tend to think about two things. And I think this passage actually puts me right on both of those things. I tend to think that eternal life is something that happens after I die. I believe that because I, I trust in Jesus, I will have eternal life. I think of that as a future thing. But Jesus is really saying here, isn't it? isn't he, that it starts now. Eternal life starts now for those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is eternal life. Not this is what it's going to be. This is eternal life. And that they might, that they know you. Another present tense. They not will know you, but they know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It starts now. And the other thing I tend to think about eternal life is that it's about something that goes on forever and ever and ever. That's eternal, right? And of course, that is true. But look where Jesus puts the emphasis. Look what he says. He says it's about relationship. It's all about relationship. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that quality of relationship is what makes everything in in this life so precious, doesn't it? 
It's our family, it's our friends, it's our colleagues, it's our brothers and our sisters in church, part of our, our family. That's what makes this life so precious, those relationships. And that is what we are called to in the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship based on an intimate knowledge of, as John said earlier, our daddy, father, God. And this is something that's going to go on forever. It's relationship. That's what makes the eternity beautiful. It's not the duration in and of itself. It's the relationship that's at the heart of it. And I really want to commend to you, and I'm not sure what's happened to my slides this morning in being transferred through the ether, but never mind. They're obliterating a little bit of the verse. But this book by Jim Packer, it is a Christian classic. It's over 50 years old now. But if you want to develop a bit more of understanding and knowing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I would really commend this book to you as a really helpful place to take you forward on that journey. Eternal life. Let's move on to our uh, our second part of the prayer, shall we? Uh, When Jesus talks about being in the world, but not of it. Now, those words are not actually words that you will find in the Bible. But it is a very good paraphrase of what Jesus talks about here in this middle section of his prayer. So let's read that together, shall we? John 17, verse 6. Jesus says, uh, I have revealed you, Father, to those who you, whom you gave me out of the world. And we'll see that the, the term the world crops up a lot in this passage. So Jesus is praying specifically for the disciples that he can see who are with him at this moment in time. They were yours, Father, but you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, through these disciples." I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. Judas Iscariot, of course, who just before this has gone off to betray Jesus, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I, while I am still in the world, so that they, my disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, from Satan. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too 
may be truly sanctified. Holy ground. In the world, but not of it. What does that mean? How on earth can we do that? We're all in the world, aren't we? We're all here. We all live in our society. We work if we have jobs. We live in our neighborhoods. We're members of gyms and of the National Trust and of Tesco's and of co-op. We're in the world. How can we be but not of the world? Well, I think Jesus gives us three clues this morning that are really helpful. The first thing he says um, is, okay, sorry, before we get to our three clues, let me just, let me just say something about this concept of the world. Um, it's a very common word in the Gospel of John. Uh, it crops up 77 times in the Gospel of John. It's the Greek word cosmos, which sounds familiar because it's the same as our word for the cosmos, right? Uh, but in John's Gospel, um, it, it rarely means that. It rarely means the whole universe. Uh, in Greek, it literally just means something that is ordered. So it's quite a neutral word in and of itself, cosmos. But when, it, when John uses it, he nearly always gives it quite a, a negative twist. And this is how one of the Bible commentators that I read on the subject, Don Carson, puts it. He said, in John, the world, the cosmos, is the world of human beings and their affairs in rebellion against God. The world of human beings and their affairs in rebellion against God. That's the world, usually in the Gospel of John. Now, I'm not going to go through all 77 occurrences of this word in the Gospel of John, but I do want to go through just two first before we look at how uh, we can be in the world but not of it. Given that the world is usually in rebellion against God, you, you might expect God to be antagonistic towards the world. You might expect God to be condemning the world whenever he possibly could, as it's in rebellion against him. But what does John say? John says, doesn't he, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, God so loved this world that's in rebellion against him that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I don't know where you are this morning in your faith, in your faith journey, in your, work, in your walk with God. But I hope if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you will hear this word this morning. This is so for you this morning. That God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue you through his death. To redeem you and to save you that you might not perish. But that you might have eternal life that we've just been thinking about to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, you might have that because of God's love for you expressed in Jesus' sacrifice. That's how God treats, that's how God's heart is oriented towards this world that is in rebellion against him. That's the first thing to say. Second thing is what Jesus says just before we get to chapter 17 and chapter 16 he says to his disciples, look, in the world, you will have trouble. I've just encouraged you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to the cross. But please, this is the other thing to hear if you haven't yet decided to follow Jesus. It's not going to be a bed of roses. Jesus says, in this world, if you're one of my followers, you will have trouble. 
But he says, take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the Jesus that we follow. He has overcome this hostile, rebellious world. So if we are his followers, we're called to be in the world, yes, but not of it. And, and how, how does that work? Well, Jesus, I've got to it now, gives us three things to think about. The first is this. He says, I don't want to take you out of the world to a kind of a fortified place where no one can touch you. I want, to, I want you to stay there, but I'm going to protect you. Verse 15, my prayer, Jesus says, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going through tough times this morning, he will not necessarily take you out of those tough times. But he says, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to be with you. You're going to be in the world, but because I'm with you, you don't have to be of the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is he says, I'm going to sanctify you. Sanctification. What does sanctification mean? It means the process of being made holy. And what does holiness mean in the Bible? It means being set apart for God's purposes and God's uses. And so Jesus says, yes, you're going to be in the world, but I want to sanctify you. I want to make you holy. I want to set you apart so that you can be my servants. And he says, this is how it happens. He says, Father, sanctify them by the truth, verse 17. Your word is truth. Friends, this is, this, is a, this, is, this is a book, obviously, but it's a bath. It's an ocean. It's something for us to soak in. It's something for us that will buoy us up that will surround us, that will come into every pore of our being and influence every thought in our head if we immerse ourselves in God's word. Your word is truth, says Jesus. If we want to fill our mind with truth and beauty and things that are noble and pure and lovely, absorb this word, soak in this word, because that's the effect it will have on our lives. And if we neglect this word, then we shouldn't expect to grow in holiness with God. But Jesus says, Father, don't let that happen. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And whenever we gather together, whenever we pray together, whenever we spend time in our church family, we're encouraging one another amongst other things to be holy before our holy God. And the third thing Jesus says about being in the world but not of it is that I'm going to send you into the world. I'm actually going to send you into it. Far from taking you out of it, I'm going to send you in. Jesus says, verse 18, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. If you're sent, you're a missionary. That's what a missionary is. It comes from the Latin word meaning sent. So Jesus says, I want you to be my missionaries. I want you to be my ambassadors wherever I am placing you. And in this church, we talk a lot about front lines. And the front lines are the places where we work and rest and play, whatever those things mean for us. And Jesus says, I am sending you into those places. To be in that world, 
but to be bringing my values to that world. That's what we're called to do in the Lord Jesus Christ when we're in the world, but not of it. And here's the last thing. Christian unity. (laughs) Just a little topic. Here's what Jesus says in, uh, in John chapter 17 and verse, um, verse 20. I, I love this. I love this, thir- this third part of the prayer because it's about us. It's about us, you and me. Jesus, just a few hours before he goes to this cross, is praying for you and for me. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely astonishing. He says, Father, my prayer is not for these disciples alone, the ones I can see who are around me now. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, you and me. What does Jesus pray? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. And in this bit, I've just under putting gold letters, all of the things that are to do with unity and oneness and togetherness. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me And have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Holy ground. Christian unity. What can I say in three minutes about Christian unity? Not very much, obviously. But here are two things uh, that I think we can we can say. Some people think that Christian unity, sorry, some people think that Christian unity uh, is just a bit of a pipe dream, that we'll never ever get there and therefore it's, there's no point in even thinking about it. <clears throat> but I want to take Jesus seriously. I want to take what he says here seriously. And so I can't say, oh, it's just a pipe dream. It'll never happen. But I do recognize that there are challenges with Christian unity. And I just want to look, about, look at two false ideas that we can have about Christian unity And then two biblical responses that we can have to those false ideas. The first false idea about Christian unity is the idea that says we don't need to worry about truth. All we need to do is love each other. And I I get that because Jesus puts such a high premium on love, doesn't he? I absolutely get it. The problem is the early church, the New Testament, doesn't bear that vision out. Here, for example... Uh, is what Paul writes to one of the young church leaders, a guy called Timothy, who he leaves in modern-day Turkey in a place called Ephesus while he moves over to modern-day Greece, Macedonia. And he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, 
stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. That's from his first letter to Timothy. Paul doesn't say, don't worry about the people who are teaching false doctrines. It's fine. Just, just, just love them. Just hang out with them. He doesn't say that. He says, challenge those false doctrines because that is your role as my representative, as the church leader in Ephesus. We can't just say, truth doesn't matter. We just love each other. But there's another false idea and there's another biblical response. The second false idea is uh, when we say, do you know what? Unity is just too difficult. Just can't be bothered with it. I'm just going to focus on the truth and forget unity. That doesn't really honour the spirit, I don't think, of what Jesus says in in John 17. It doesn't honour really the spirit of the Lord who gave his life for us. And Paul, again, (laughs) gives us a helpful verse. This this, this, This is the verse he writes to the church in Ephesus, not just the leader of the church, but the whole church. He says to them, look, guys, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I don't know about you, but when I look back at my life, there have been times when I haven't made every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I've made some effort, I hope, but have I made every effort? Whether it's been individual relationships with, with folk in the church, or whether it's been when I've been thinking about bigger interchurch things, have I made every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? And I have to do that. I have to do that. I can't just put my hands, throw my hands in the air and say, our oh, unity is too difficult. I have to commit to making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace because Jesus gave his life for that. Jesus gave his life that we might seek that unity that he prays for us in John 17. So keeping those two things in balance is really tough, but that's what we're called to do. We're called to keep those things in balance. And as I think about a balance, can you see another symbol there in the balance? It recalls to me the the cross when I look at a balance. And what happened on the cross? It's the place where opposites came together, where love and wrath came together. That's what Richard's talking about up in the lounge this morning. It's the place where God's justice and God's mercy meet. It's the place where divine sovereignty and human free will come together. It's the place where all things ultimately are reconciled. The cross is such a powerful and an extraordinary place. And as in a moment we come to share bread and share wine together, we're going to remember the Lamb of God who gave his, his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we're going to do it in a ceremony, a service, a celebration that we call communion. What's communion? Communion is com union, together and oneness. And as we share the bread and the wine together, we're going to be reminded visibly, powerfully of our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's going to be a fitting fulfillment of what we've been talking about this morning. 
And I'm going to invite Ben uh, shortly to come and lead us in communion. But before we do that, I want us just to take one minute of silence. Because we're on holy ground this morning. And I don't want us to forget that we've been on holy ground. And I want us to take one minute of silence to think, what has God been, been speaking to me about in this place of holy ground? What has Jesus' prayer said to me about God and about myself this morning? How can the Holy Spirit speak things that are going to be significant for me in the week to come?